Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well, including two Patreon-only podcast documentary series, an uncanny hour which looks at some of the overlooked gems and oddities of culture, like why humans continue to believe in alien visitation via UFOs and the films of John Carpenter and David Cronenberg, as well as our latest series, Tips for Existence, which is Robin Ince in conversation with scientists and artists about searching for meaning in a meaningless universe. Some guests on that show include Brian Green and Tim Minchin and Neil Gaiman and Andrean and Nicole Stott and Chris Jackson, Carlo Ravelli and lots more as well. And now, here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome to Sunday Science Q&A, a new time, obviously, as you can see or not see, because you might be listening to this because you've forgotten that it started at 10am, so you're listening to it in hindsight. Uh, by the way, I have a particularly broody pigeon just outside this window, if you hear any of that background noise. Anyway, today uh, we have, uh, we're have we joined by people that we've had on regularly in the past, uh, Brenna Hassett and Alice Roberts, and I'll tell you more about them later on. Uh, and uh, I'll just tell you a few things that are coming up. Uh, some of you who... Uh, saw Alice's excellent Christmas lectures. We'll know that she did them with Ethan McLeisat. And she is on our next Tips for Existence, which will be on this Wednesday. Also, new stuff that we've got, uh, Joanna Neary, who is one of the funniest people in the world, and I think one of the most underrated people in this world. Why she's not on television and radio more often, I do not know. And that's why we've made a series with her called Wife on Earth. So Wife on Earth is up there. There's a pretty recent brain yapping as well with Dean Burnett and Rachel England. And also we've put up a kind of compilation show of the last series of uh, An Uncanny Hour with uh, Stuart Lee and Mark Kermode and Christine Corbett Moran and uh, also an expert with uh, Gemma Arrowsmith that you won't heard uh, have heard before, which is us talking about. Uh, the Twilight Zone. Basically, you won't have heard it because we haven't done an episode about the Twilight Zone, but we were meant to be talking about silent running and we just end up talking a lot about Rod Serling's Twilight Zone. And also, if you're a Patreon supporter, you will know that there are some bonus pieces that you're getting this weekend from Stuart Lee and Mark Kermode as well. If you can support us via Patreon and you don't as yet, please 
think about it uh, because it helps a great deal. We're still not obviously back into the real world of that much live performance. So thank you very much, everyone who was at Trowbridge Town Hall last night. I had an absolutely lovely time uh, playing there. But if you can support us for our Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Uh, nearly over with the announcements. Uh, June the 11th, we're doing uh, a live book shambles for the More Than Words Literary Festival. That's going to be Joe C. Long and me and also with Michael Spicer. If you want to send questions, then send them to at Cosmic Shambles on Twitter or just pop them in the live chat. And next week, just so you know, in advance, again, we'll be back 10 a.m. We're staying at 10 a.m. for the time being. We're going to do one all about psychology and in particular psychology and video games. And uh, that's with Pete Etchells, who uh, had written a has written a fantastic book about that. Um, and uh, also Ginny Smith, who has uh, a new psychology book out now as well. Have a look at that. So, uh, Helen, how are you? I'm I'm doing all right. I have to say, you start, this might be the start of it, but when you leaned into the camera with one glasses eye, your eye kind of filled the um, screen. It was quite terrifying. You looked very stern. Um, you looked like Peter Cushing, if you remember the lovely thing, those great pictures of Peter Cushing, who, by the way, it was his birthday last week. He would have been 108. Happy 108th birthday, Peter Cushing. Those wonderful shots where he had a magnifying glass, and so one of his yes. eyes would be enormous as he looked at the mm. mummified finger that would soon become alive. Well, it, it's terrifying. I, I think you think you should use that habit with care so my i've been before i get onto this a bit of science this week i have to share something with everyone sort of to make me do it so a few weeks ago one of the random things i put on twitter was about seaweed and omega-3 fatty acids and how they actually come from algae not fish the fish eat the algae that's where they come from and so i started finding out about eating seaweed which i do occasionally but i've never made a thing of it and so i bought a seaweed cookbook and some seaweed and i haven't tried cooking either yet and i'm a bit scared <laughs> um but i'm telling you because then i know you'll ask me about it next week and i'll have to have done it because at the moment it's sitting on my kitchen table and i'm really interested but i'm also a bit it feels like a big commitment to a meal to put seaweed in it so um that project has been going on and it's i mean people do in in britain and you know obviously wales has a tradition of it um and the british have rarely eaten seaweed in bits but it's more common in other cultures anyway so that's one of my things so uh, so ask me next week because then i'll have to have cooked some seaweed um so in science this week we're going back to may uh, 1964 and the this what was happening back uh, in the early 60s was that people had telescopes. Uh, there was a lot of radio astronomy going on, partly as a consequence of the Second World War. And um, Penzias and Wilson, Robert, uh, Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias had this great big this. It was called I think it was called the Horn Antenna in the Bell Labs, this massive, great big sort of arc of a thing that stared out to the, to the sky and looked for microwaves. And it was there was a paper in May uh, 1964 when they they published that this odd thing, which was that wherever they pointed this thing in the sky, there was this odd buzzing thing. And it, it sounds like they were kind of embarrassed to, to publish the paper because they were supposed to be looking for stars and galaxies and big things. And they they thought this must be a mistake. So what I love about this is they tried every single thing to get rid of this mistake. They cleaned out their telescope. Uh, they cleaned out all the pigeon poo in the telescope. They tried pointing it to different places. They tried doing it at different times. Like they tried everything to make this thing go away. And it was really annoying. And, and it was like, oh, um, it feels like a mistake, but we have to publish our mistake. And so they did. And what they had published was the discovery of the cosmic microwave background, which is the earliest light signature in the universe. Um, from the, the earliest point in the universe when light could actually travel through the universe and not just get reabsorbed. So, um, and this this radio background, which sits throughout the universe, it's kind of flowing, flooding past us all the time. 
anything that's detected now has been whizzing about since just after the birth of the universe. And it was really important for understanding uh, the Big Bang, for actually providing evidence that that actually really happened and wasn't just a theoretical idea. And also for just people, uh, ideas of inflation, this idea that the early universe expanded very, very quickly. And then later on, people saw tiny, tiny little density changes in this, this um, in the radiation coming from different directions. And that was did a lot to understand how early galaxies formed and how matter started to clump. But I love this story because it all came from something that felt like a mistake. They weren't looking for it. They were really, really thorough in trying to rule out everything else it could be. And it was that Sherlock Holmes thing of when you've eliminated the improbable, whatever's left, or when, no, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever's left, however improbable, must be the truth. And, and sometimes science works like that. So that's, that's this week in history. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Helen. Um, and uh, I was going to ask you, I don't think we've got time, but we might talk about this later on. We've been talking a lot in the last few weeks about the uh, the Shell Sponsorship and Science Museum. And of course, there was a uh, the courts uh, in Holland this week. We'll, perhaps we'll talk about that later on, but uh, interesting. Um, Alice Roberts, hello. Good hello, morning hello, hello. Good morning. Now, it's Peter Cushing's birthday last week. It's also a big week for you because uh, your show and tell officially is obviously your new book, isn't it? It is. It is published on um, Thursday this week. I'm so excited. So this is all about uh, prehistoric Britain and it's uh, prehistory of Britain through burials, of course, being somebody that's um, you know fascinated by burials. And it goes it goes back in time hundreds of thousands of years ago and then gets all the way up to the Iron Age. And there's a there's a focus on seven really special burials in the book. But obviously, I, I range around a bit more than that as well. But it's also about the union. I don't want to say clash the union between archaeology and genetics, because that's just getting so exciting. I mean, this is a this this is an area that I'm I'm obsessed with and I've been obsessed with for, for a while. These two very different disciplines in science coming together and some of the revelations that we've now got coming out of it are just astonishing. In terms of going back in, in, in burials, up, there's a few books that I've, I've read recently where, you know, it, it seems we keep being able to go further back and further back into actual ritualistic um, burials. Uh, and, and so how far back in, in, in your book, what, what, what's the oldest burial that appears to actually have some level of ritual to it as well? This is a really, this is a really interesting question. And it's also a question which I think um, makes us think about our own responses to death and also whether we can look at responses to death as showing us that people have got something modern about their way of thinking. I mean, we we obviously ritualise our responses to death and, and burial or cremation is, is part of that. Um, when you start to pull it apart, you have to be really careful because you have to make a distinction between mortuary practice on the one hand, which is essentially just getting rid of a dead body, and then funerary practice on the other hand, which is a more ritualised approach to the whole affair. And I think some of the early evidence we've got of possible humans um, moving moving bodies around, it may be that they are that they're removing bodies from their immediate vicinity in the way that actually termites and ants do. You know, so so other animals do move dead bodies out of the way. So I think we do have to look for other elements of ritual. And we start to get that by the time we've got burials with objects associated with them. So there's some very, very early burials from from Israel, modern human burials, um, where those people were definitely buried um, in fairly shallow graves inside caves. 
but with beads associated with them. So, so at that point, you say you think, no, this isn't just covering up a body. This is this is something a bit more than that. And then the burial that I start with in the book is the oldest burial in Britain, which is thirty four thousand years old, the Ice Age, and that is an extraordinary burial. It's a burial in a cave again, on the coast of South Wales on the Gower. And this individual, this man, was buried with, um, he's stained with red ochre. We don't know whether ochre pigment was placed in the grave with him or maybe he was wearing clothes that were that were dyed with red ochre. But he's also got lots and lots of ivory objects with him, um, some of which are potentially bead blanks. They're little pieces of cylindrical ivory. Uh, there's, a, there's a mammoth skull which might have been in the grave. Um, there are There are what look like toggles to me, but some archaeologists think they're female figurines buried with him. But there's a lot of ritual going on. And the really interesting thing about that burial is that there are very similar burials to that right across Europe at this time. So we see these these burials in what we call the Gravettian uh, period of the Upper Paleolithic. And um, and there's lots of burials with red ochre and, uh, and ivory beads and other ivory artefacts with them. So there's some kind of common culture across Europe at this time. I like that idea of being buried with his ma- his mammoth. You know the idea. <laughs> buried with he always wanted to be buried with it. Blood. This is a lot more digging than I'd hoped for, to be honest. Um, the uh, Brenner, thank you very much for joining us. The last time uh, we you, you had a tooth, didn't you, on the show and tell? I, I believe was it a tooth? The last one I did. I believe because your your teeth were, I believe, exploding in your mouth, and so I decided the best oh, thing I, I could do would bring yeah. some fake wooded um, teeth that I'd created in a lab. Um, and show you the teeth that you couldn't have. Brilliant. What have you got for us this time? Because I, I've, I've had nothing particularly, you know, pulled out with pliers this time to... Uh... Well, this time I've, I've cheated um, because I am actually in glorious rural Greece. <sighs> so... Um... I don't think we've had anyone bring a whole country before. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, yes. <laughs> Just that view. That's lovely. So- it's it is uh it's pretty nice and actually I've, I've gone sort of wandering around the garden which has just been stone so the soil's all been dug up and um I think we looked um we've looked before in the shambles at stuff you find in your garden which is quite a fun thing so this is a very different garden a very different place and so I thought I'd bring out some of the the little things that I found this little fellow unassuming is in fact the same part as this little handle from some Greek householders, long discarded, <laughs> basically pot, uh, probably for water or something. And um, without without analyzing it further, it could be anything like 300 years old to, you know, 2000, because this is Greece and there's a lot going on here. Brilliant. Thank- Brilliant. Thank you so much. And I should mention as well that uh, uh, some of you will know anyway, the first time I met Brenner was due to her work with Trowel Blazers. And if you don't know Trowel Blazers, go and find out more about Trowel Blazers because uh, it is is fantastic and it is a great resource for many of the, uh, well, basically people who have been the forgotten women of uh, the digging based sciences. Uh, yeah. That's probably yeah. the technical way of putting it, but it's a, it, there's so many people who uh, and s- such a rich selection of stories. So go and look there. Now let's get started with the question. So first of all, Miranda's question: uh, Do you think COVID will show up in the fossil stroke bone records? If someone, uh, if someone, all our history, if somehow all of our history was erased, and then someone or something dug us all up in three hundred years' time? So Alice, what do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we are now at this point where 
when I started out as an osteologist, I could diagnose some diseases looking at ancient bones. Um, most diseases kill you quite quickly and don't leave any mark on the bones. Some leave you with kind of non-specific um, changes in bones. I mean, bone can only respond in one of two ways. It either makes more bone or bone disappears. Um, and then there are a handful of diseases that have really pathognomonic changes that you look at the bones and you go, well, I know what that is. And they are things like leprosy, TB and syphilis. But now we're, we've entered a different era. We've entered the era of um, archaeogenomics. So we are now, when we are able to extract DNA from ancient human remains, we're able to look at the, the human genomes. And I've written a lot about that in, in, in my book. Um, but we can also sequence all of the metagenomes. So the genomes that are also there. Now, some of those genomes will be from uh, bacteria that are in the soil that the person's buried in. But some of them will be from pathogens that that person was carrying around. And we've had some extraordinary revelations in recent years. So just a few years ago, we had um, the uh, revelation from a 6th century cemetery in Suffolk that the Justinianic plague had reached British shores. We didn't know that. We had no documentary evidence of that. We have plenty of evidence of this uh, of this plague uh, in the Roman Empire and other, other parts of the Roman Empire in the 540s, but nobody had written about it getting as far um, as as Britain, sorry, in the in the Byzantine Empire. And um, and so by analysing that DNA, the geneticists were able to say, yes, absolutely, we've got Yersinia pestis. Um, this is the genome of Yersinia pestis in an Anglo-Saxon grave. Um, so quite extraordinary. So, yes, we will be able to um, to find COVID by its genetic signature. Isn't this about cause and effect here? Because, you know, there are these big and I see this more for climate things. And obviously, I don't know much as much about sort of extinctions and animals. But the so it looks like our lives after COVID will be quite different for lots of other reasons. Right. We might be cycling more. We might have fewer. You know, there'll be other, other big, big changes in society. And and it seems there's two things here. Like you could get a an anatomical record of perhaps there was a disease and then you also get a cultural record of there was some big change in culture mm. and it seems that separating those two like which one came first is that a problem you have in archaeology like it's just striking because you can actually see it happening there's these two big things happening at the same time and they're not unlinked but that you know how do you pick them apart in the no I mean, no I mean it's absolutely fascinating isn't it and it is it is these big questions because uh, I think that this is this is how genetics is changing archaeology at the moment and it's doing exactly uh, what you're suggesting Helen so it's so rather than the question being did the plague reach Britain and then you know arguing about it and saying well we've got some multiple burials all of that sort of thing actually that's those those questions are not that interesting that's kind of the data that you want to start with once you once you're able to say yes the the plague in the sixth century did reach Britain then you move on to saying well what was the impact of that what happened socially and culturally and it's not just diseases of course it's also people moving around so so we can see cultural changes we've been able to see those mapping them archaeologically for a very long time uh, there's been a, an ongoing argument about whether those cultural changes are linked to uh, more people moving around sometimes quite large migrations of people and really until until genetics comes along we haven't been able to answer that question and now we're able to so it shifts now the questions I think in a much more interesting direction so that now you can say all oh, right there, there was a population replacement in the bronze age what did that look like 
how did that play out on the ground? How did the incomes relate to the people who were, you know, the farmers that were already living in Britain, for instance? Um, and so it does move us on to, to much more interesting questions. But I mean, certainly when you look at diseases and when you look at um, the, the Black Death, so another another instance of the plague, of course, um, it it really changed British society. Um, and in some ways for the better, I think. So that, you know, following the, following the Black Death, um, I think that there's an argument to be made that perhaps the um, the the most socioeconomically deprived people in Britain were actually a, a little better off because there simply weren't enough people to labour in the fields. So you couldn't treat people as badly as you had done before. So there was a labour shortage. So it did it did um, it did create a lot of disruption, um, but you know sometimes not in a bad way and i i really hope that's what we're going to see with covid i really you know you hope don't you that with, with all the devastation that we've seen and the mismanagement of this disease in britain in particular that what we see after it is something which moves our society in a better direction perhaps we'll we'll realize that we need to really focus on the inequality in our society because that's what we've you know covid has really shone a light on how some communities are just not able to protect themselves through this pandemic Brilliant. Thank you, Alice. Um, question for you, Brenna, from Barry. Uh, and Barry would like to know, what's your best guess where there may be some ancient or prehistoric human settlement sites we've yet to uncover? And so I suppose what really the question is, how do you decide where to dig? Um, well, uh, you do what I'm about to do uh, in two weeks time, uh, quite frequently, which is start off with a survey which is human beings walking in very straight lines across a landscape, staring intently at the ground. <laughs> it sounds fascinating, I know, but this is actually, we have systematic ways of basically looking at the world and trying to calculate where humans have been. So for instance, me walking around my field earlier, um, I know that there were humans there because um, when uh, my landlord comes and plows up the soil, a bunch of potsherds and little bits of other human life ephemera and a couple of coffee cups, you know, show up in the soil. So actually archeologists have quite systematic ways now of processing landscapes. We can do it from satellites. We can do it from lasers mounted on airplanes. We can do it now from very expensive drones that I really wish someone would buy me. Um, but we have a lot of ways of basically sort of analyzing the ground as it is now. And we also, of course, have all the historical records of where people used to live and environmental records. And that's actually something that I think a lot of people don't think about is that where rivers were, where coasts were, um, is not necessarily where they are now. Um, Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers, those rivers are not where they used to be. No wonder you can't find anything in the Bible. The river moved. It's, you know, there's some serious environmental stuff. So I actually think one of the most exciting areas for research is where humans and not humans are earlier relatives, cousins. Um, the Neanderthals, for instance, they were in Europe. You know where's really nice in Europe? The coasts. But the coast isn't where it used to be. And so we have a lot of work ahead of us, probably finding these ancient coastlines, finding these ancient landscapes, identifying, you know, where the sea used to be, and then going, well, if I was a Neanderthal, where would I like my cave to look out on? 
But how, that's interesting. So I was um, re- researching this week a, a site in uh, Chile, no human remains, um, Monteverde. There is, it's, it was a, it's interesting for other reasons to do with seaweed. Um, I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Um, oldest, one of the oldest habitation sites in the Americas. What, is, what if you look at what was happening from a climate point of view? You know, um, the last glacial maximum was like twenty six thousand years ago, so sea level was a lot lower, and so. And if people live by coast, then the sea level rose, right? So, so it, that sort of suggests that anything in that period and back a bit further is likely to be submerged. How much are you looking in the the bits that are submerged now? I mean, how easy is it to do? Because obviously, it's a bit harder. You can't just walk across the seabed in the same way um, and look at its pot. Maybe you can. No, but uh, underwater archaeology. This is not outside the bounds. Uh, I mean, we have manned robotic drones that can do the same job I'm doing, systematically walking in lines, mapping what pots I find on the ground so that we can see where the Romans were, where the Byzantines were. Um, You know, an underwater drone apparently can do my job just fine, Um, which is always nice to know. Um, CV available on request. But you know, the, there are, you know, increasing investigations. I used to work on an island called Antikythera, which is famous for the Antikythera mechanism, which a lot of people will have heard of because it's like the world's first computer. It's not. Sorry. What is it? What is it? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's like a couple of dials. They make them in roads. It's one of three. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, it's one of those things you use to calculate. Like, I don't know. It's, it's not, I mean, it's not quite a Tamagotchi pet for the older listener. You can Google it. Um, but you know, it's it's it is for calculating, and it's for calculating astronomical phenomena. I think, but um, you know, boring, I would wave a flag for calculating astronomical phenomena. Yeah, that's right. right. Okay, this is the audience for that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but you know, all this stuff is coming out out of, out of shipwrecks because Antikythera is kind of full of pirates, and it turns out you can make shipwrecks. You can actually influence the number of shipwrecks near you in a fairly aggressive fashion. Um, <sighs> So, uh, so actually, you know, Antikythera is a place where underwater archaeology is pulling out amazing things, um, like you know, the Antikythera mechanism. While us on top are busy explaining who the pirates were, but of course, no one cares about the pirates; they just want the fancy first computer. Brilliant. Um, now we've got a question about the living human uh, for you, uh, Alice. This is uh, Michaela's uh, daughter, eight-year-old daughter, was asking the other day, what happens to cells and molecules in your body to make all of your skin hot when you have fever? How exactly does this heat transfer happen? Oh, my goodness. Um, the easiest answer to that is I don't know, and I'm not a physiologist, um, but certainly I can tell you why it happens um, and that it is a very sensible response of the body. So what the body is trying to do is get rid of something which is obviously very happy living at 37.5 degrees Celsius. Um, and so what your body's doing is is undergoing this response to heat itself up. I mean, what, your body is constantly... Uh, maintaining itself within very narrow parameters, actually, because within your within your cells, um, all of the chemical processes and imagine, I mean, there are there are thousands and thousands of chemical processes going on all the time in every single one of your cells. And the environment has to be just right for those chemical processes to happen smoothly. So that means that the cell has to be kept at a, at a constant temperature 
um, and your your temperature is 37.5, it means that um, the the pH, the the kind of acidity of the of the cell, needs to be kept within extremely strict parameters. So cells are constantly kicking out some ions and then pumping in others to maintain um, that 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 kind of balance. We call it homeostasis. So it's about temperature, it's about the chemical composition of your body, all of these things. So through evolution, um, our bodies have um, essentially worked out, and I'm, I'm kind of giving them, uh, I'm kind of anthropomorphizing here, but they, your bodies, our bodies have worked out that one of the brilliant ways to kick out a pathogen, so if something is trying to invade your body and is uh, seems to be happy living at 37.5 degrees, if you up that temperature, you've got a chance of crushing that pathogen. Now, it doesn't make you feel very good at the same time, um, but if you can kind of have waves of increasing your body temperature, you'll survive that and you might actually reduce um, the, the pathogen load inside you. So that's the kind of basis of it. It's, it feels like it's something gone wrong, but it's not at all. It's something gone very right. It is a, it's a very reasonable response of your body to trying to get rid of something. Well, that's very good for someone who doesn't really know. Uh, I think you knew quite a lot there. Uh, um, this is a question for you, Brenna. Uh, Lee says, uh, my partner reckons he read something somewhere that in olden times, people used to use deer antlers for false teeth, but he can't find the original article. Is this true? Wow. You know, I have not heard deer antler, um, which is shocking, given my teeth brief. And I will now seek this out and find it. This will be my quest for the bank holiday. But um, I mean, geez, they used everything else. So I would not be surprised. Um, we have gold teeth from the seventh century in Egypt. Um, we have uh, my personal favorite, Waterloo teeth. Oh, no. Um, uh, oh. Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Alice turned away. Mm -hmm. Alice knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so uh, it used to be that people lost their teeth a lot. We had sugar, we didn't have toothpaste. This was a bad combo, things happened. Other things that happened were battles where lots of young men with beautiful teeth died. This was very sad for them, but wonderful for the society folk back in London who'd rotted their teeth out with expensive sugary treats and now needed some dentures. So, you know, there were, there were several high society matrons and patrons back in the day in London wandering around with a face full of dead soldier teeth that someone scavenged off of a battlefield like Waterloo. And that was a thing that people did for fashion. It's weird though, isn't it? Though, isn't it? Because we bulk at it. I mean, I think it sounds utterly disgusting. But then I suppose you could think of modern transplants being quite similar to that. It's just um, so it's just our it's kind of our reaction to the fact that it's teeth taken from a battlefield, I think, that makes us good. I think I think it's the fact that robbed our brave boys, which which played badly in the newspapers at the time, um, was the, the it was the corpse picking. It wasn't, it wasn't the corpse wearing, it was the corpse picking, I think, that people well, objected to. It's probably to. the idea that someone's kind of hanging around by the battlefield waiting for people to die, <laughs> isn't it? Like, get them while they're fresh type. Yeah, it's the prof profiteering, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, it's that bit. It's the. I, I wonder if there's ever been... It's been a collective. It would be... I, I must ask Johnny Maines, who I've worked with doing various kind of horror anthologies, who's an incredible archivist, because there has to have been a, a ghost story. In the same way that if, if they ever do a story where someone's had their hands transplanted, then those hands start to commit terrible acts like the hands of Orlac. I presume there must somewhere be a 19th century ghost tooth story. Oh, when your own teeth would turn on you. Talk in a, in a lewd and unruly soldierly manner. Um, Johnny Maines, look that up. Find that out for me. Um, 
Uh, Andy says, this is uh, referring back to our 24-hour show uh, that was uh, at the beginning of, uh, of December. And uh, during that time, I spoke to uh, two scientists who are originally from Aboriginal communities, uh, Crystal DiNapoli and Zena Cumston. And uh, it's got Andy wondering about how much of a part I'll ask both of you this really, but racism has played in ignoring good medical and scientific knowledge from people who have been considered to be lesser people. Um, start with you, Alice. I think that um, racism has um, played such a huge part in um, scientific knowledge generally and uh, and medical knowledge in particular. Um, and it's I suppose it's some of it's about ignoring ignoring knowledge that's already there and just assuming that um, a certain way of um, of obtaining knowledge is, is superior. And I hope we've we've kind of got beyond that now. And certainly um, in terms of things like drug discovery, it's really important to, to look at medicines that people have been using for a very long time and try to understand how those medicines might work, you know, sort of herbal medicines that that people have been using. Um, but in I mean, there's there's much worse things that have happened um, in the history of uh, of science and medicine, um, and and I think certainly um, racism probably plays into um, cases like that of Henrietta Lacks, whose whose cells were taken and uh, and then used in labs, you know, posthumously, but but without her consent. Um, and I think there's been you know there there are so many cases of that. And then in terms of my own discipline, biological anthropology, I mean, you just can't get away from the, the kind of racist origins of, uh, of that science. And when I'm uh, talking to any students about it, uh, uh, we, we spend quite a long time talking about anthropology in the 19th century and how it was used um, into the 20th century, of course, as well, because we're looking at diversity today and we're, we're doing that through, you know, looking at looking at skeletons themselves, but then also looking at looking at genetics. And we're doing it, I hope, um, in a way that um, strips kind of values away. Whereas in the 19th century, they were very much trying to rank people. So the idea was that you could kind of characterise people and you weren't just interested in looking at how diverse humanity was across the planet. You were looking at who was the best. Um, and, and the best was always, of course, the um, the white male. Um, with, what a white, I know it's it's strange, isn't it? That, that, that this was science carried out by white males, and that they ended up concluding that they were um, the epitome, the 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 um, apotheosis of uh, of humanity on the planet. So I hope we've we've kind of scrubbed that away. There's a brilliant, brilliant book about that um, by um, the wonderful Stephen Jay Gould called "The Mismeasure of Man," and it's all about ancient skull measuring. But I think it applies equally to genetics as well. I got worried, though. I, I read a recent thing which said that Jay Gould's book also slightly ends up uh, fudging some of the stuff because of the result that he wanted as well. You know, you know, it's, it's that bit, isn't it? The, the constant complexity of each time a story is written. But, yeah, I, I still highly recommend reading uh, The Mismeasure of Man. And also on Snopes.com, which is always useful. Uh, yesterday, there was a good thing about critical race theory and how it's misrepresented, which kind of in some ways leads into this as well. Um, um, if you fancy, just if you not some fiction reading on this. Um, there's a brilliant book called The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins, which it is a novel, but it's based on what people were doing at the time. And it's it's really it's a really good portrayal of some of these debates um, in the Victorian period. So if anyone is up for some reading, it's a really good book. And I highly recommend that. It's The Confessions of Franny Langton. 
I would imagine the people who watch this and the other Cosmic Shambles thing are generally up for some reading. So <laughs> I, you've, you've chosen the right people to recommend them. I'm, I'm going to move on actually now to Jarvis, who's 10 years old. Uh, Brenna, uh, Jarvis would like to know, how are fossils different from just really old bones? <laughs> um, you don't want to get hit with either, but if you have to choose, choose the bone. <laughs> fossils are hard. They've got, they've basically, they've sat in the ground and um, they've had minerals. So the stuff that, that sort of makes the hard part of bone, um, minerals are everywhere and they get transported tiny little bit by bit by bit. And um, if you leave something in the ground long enough in the right conditions with enough minerals around it, stuff like the water moving through the ground will carry little bits of mineral into uh, your bone, which was previously only about 65% mineral, and it will turn it into something that is basically a rock. So fossils are what happens to bones um, when all of their soft bits basically get replaced by hard bits. It's more or less, it, it is a bone, a fossil is a bone, but it's just a um, heck of a thing to be hit in the back of the head with. And is any of the original bone left, How, what, or is it is it just replaced? Um, kind of depends. I actually probably don't know what, because it, I think it depends on what you're replacing it with and what the size of the various molecules are, and that's one of those complicated questions that chemistry people ought to be answering. It's really, but it depends on the burial environment, doesn't it? Because sometimes, sometimes you don't get that much change at all, and you can have bones that are that are very, very old, but but still retain a lot of no, um, and the original chemical composition, then um, a similar chemical composition. Um, I'm sure, Alice, you will have run into um, what what's sort of called shadows in the soil quite evocatively, but by my perspective, which is the line of where bones used to be. And you sort of lovingly excavate. It happens a lot in Greece because the limestone, which really sucks mineral out of bone and makes them sort of just the soft bits, which don't last. And then you sort of open up a, a beautiful tomb and there is, you know, this sort of shadow where the body of some, you know, ancient dead Greek person would have been. And there's you ready to do your analysis on the mm. bones and there are no bones. But the teeth, the teeth are harder, 97% mineral. That's why they're better. So it's, it, it's very, very, very rare that any, anything gets fossilised. Um, that's that's the other thing, isn't it? That you know, as you say, I've I've dug a lot of burials where um, there are other things in the grave, but no bones, or just a just a kind of suggestion, just maybe a sort of slight white residue, um, and and nothing else there. Um, and sometimes you just can't see detect any evidence of bones at all. But when you when you sample the soil, you find phosphate there. So you know that there were bones there because that's one of the principal components of the hard mineral in bones. But it is it is frustrating for someone like me who wants to be able to look at the skeleton and get some information from it. But, you know, those and those bones having gone in the space, you know, I've 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 dug um, graves which are you know, maybe fifteen hundred years old and they have no bones in them. So that's it. There's no, those bones are gone. They're not going to become fossils. It's jolly good though, isn't it? Because if if it was more of them that were preserved, the soil would just be full of humans everywhere. I mean, it's recycling is. I think we don't want the dead humans piling up any more than we want the plastic piling up. Uh, having I'm all right with having a few, but I'm I'm glad that there's a lot of recycling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it has a, you, you seeing Ray Harryhausen's Jason and the Argonauts and the battling skeletons has really affected you thinking <laughs> about life. Um, you know what this my is nightmare when I was a kid was a skeleton chasing a mouse in a dark tunnel. That was the only nightmare I had as a kid. I had to <laughs> 
And then I went to the lava tunnel in Hawaii and it was exactly, it was the same time. <laughs> you guys are so prepared for the psychology episode. Wow. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, uh, I've I've immediately sent your dream, Helen, to a Freudian, uh, a Lacanian and a Jungian. <laughs> and we'll come back and find out what that means. Um, this is a question from uh, Thomas Hitchhart, who's six years old. And uh, you were just talking, uh, Brenna, there about uh, different ways that bones and fossils might be used as some kind of weapon. Now, this is going to worry. I've never heard of a bomby knocker before. And I also know that Trent, uh, quite often when he sends me the questions, his spell check changes words. So this is a question from Thomas. Bomby knocker. So there, Trent tells me it is correct. Did cavemen really hunt mammoths with bomby knockers? So first of all, who knows what a bomby knocker is? No. No. <laughs> Thomas, I mean, it's like your six-year-old is going to be uh, uh, the leading expert in this field. Um, we will try and find out more about what a bomby knocker is before the end of the show. But for Spears, the yes. Oh, okay. Some kind so of flail, flail I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, you, you want to you you projectile. You, projectile. You, you don't want to get that close to a mammoth. Um, it... it one of the great advantages, you know, that Homo sapiens seems to have had over our uh, previous relatives on this planet was projectiles. We were really into projectiles because if you're hunting something large and presumably very angry because you are perhaps trying to kill it, um, you don't want to be within stomping or tusking range. That's just a, a bad idea. So, you know, and you can hit them with sticks. And I believe that there are, you know, I'm sure there are incidents in the past, but a lot of, I think, mammoth hunting, it seems like things like spears, poking sticks, and then eventually throwing sticks, which is one of the big, exciting technological revolutions that is sort of uh, we seem to have made in the past. But um, yeah, don't get so close to the mammoth, I think, is, is the advice there. That much mammoth hunting going on. I think it's. I think there's this kind of iconic picture of Stone Age hunters chasing after mammoths, and I think, well, we know, don't we, Brennan? When we look at archaeological sites, and we've got the we've got what people eat in archaeological sites. You know, in the rubbish tips around camps, we've got what people actually ate, and they weren't eating that much in terms of mammoths. They were eating what you would imagine they'd be eating. Things, you know, things the size of rabbits, deer, antelope, those kind of things. Reindeer everywhere during the Ice Age. Um, horses. Um, but not very often mammoths. Um, there are a few mammoth kill sites, definitely, in the Americas, where we've got mammoth skeletons with um, human spear points in them. So you've kind of got the smoking gun there. But we haven't got any mammoth kill sites in Europe or Asia. On the other hand, we know that they were using a lot of mammoth bones and a lot of mammoth tusks. And in some places up in the up in the high north, when it was extremely cold and there were no trees around, they would be burning mammoth bones and making their houses out of mammoth bones as well, because there aren't any trees for, for timber. So we know that people are using mammoth, but that's very different from hunting mammoths, because what we still find in the landscape of Siberia today are very, very ancient mammoths. So we think that people in the past were doing the same thing. They were scavenging mammoths. Those might have been mammoths that died yesterday. They might have been mammoths that died a thousand years ago. But their bones and their tusks were still there and still useful. So how true is it? I remember about 20 years ago reading a book called A Short History of Progress by Ronald Wright. And he used as an example of a kind of a danger of, of us you know, creating waste. Uh, the idea that one of the reasons mammoth went extinct was that the hunting technique eventually became, let's just scare them all off over the end of this trip. 
and then we'll take those. So do we have much evidence for this or was that very much anecdotal? That was certainly the explanation for um, a site in Jersey for a long time, but it seems to be very unlikely now. So um, people like, well, Matt Pope, who's been digging on Jersey and looking at the Neanderthal site there um, in much greater detail, thinks it's more likely that people there actually, and, and this would have been uh, Neanderthals, would have been herding mammoths into a narrow valley rather than driving them off a cliff. Um, so whether they're killing them all, I'm not, I'm not sure. But... I mean, we think that we think that human hunting did contribute to um, the pressure on, on on mammoths, and of course they do die out at the end of the ice age, like so many other um, of those big animals, those mega fauna of the ice age disappear um, at the uh, at the end of the ice age. I mean, we think that humans, and by this time humans had teamed up with dogs, um, were just putting a bit of extra pressure um, on those animals, but they weren't. I don't. Th I still don't think they were hunting them all the time. Brilliant, thank you. Um, You're watching Sunday question. Science Q&A. Oh. Oh, we've got a live okay. question, but you do your plug first. <laughs> question Sunday Science Q&A, just to tell you that next week we're joined by Ginny Smith and Pete Etchells, where we'll be talking about psychology and also in particular uh, psychology of uh, video games. Today we're with uh, Brenna Hassett and uh, Alice Roberts. And don't forget, if you can support us uh, via Patreon, go to cosmicshambles.com. Uh, no, to go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles but also go to cosmic shambles.com we've got loads of new stuff up this week and i'm gonna before you get to your questions that just come in helen very quickly because as i mentioned before Aoife, uh is on this week's tips for existence and we have a question from robert about the uh christmas lectures that you did together um alice and again this is something we talk about on wednesday as well which is uh was particularly interested in you both talking about the importance of us realizing all about the different levels of connection that we have with all living things uh, and uh, so you'd like to know uh, I do understand that we can feel like a belittling approach to many people and I wonder if you had any suggestions on a way to make it seem more exciting than belittling to those people now I have to admit I find that interesting because I never find it belittling I find the idea of all of this connection and the connection with yeast and all of those things I, I, I don't but Obviously, some people do. Again, perhaps it goes back to that, you know, the white man saying, and I, I've done the research and it turns out we definitely are the best. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's an element of that, but I also think it's what religions told us for a very long time. Uh, religions have told us, particularly the Abrahamic religions, have told us that um, we're very special and that we have dominion over everything else, all other life on Earth, and that effectively all this other life on Earth is there for us. And biology comes along and, you know, knocks us off a pedestal. And I think that there are a whole series of scientific advances that really do knock humans off, off a pedestal. Um, one of them is the, the fact that the, the solar system is the solar system. The Earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. So suddenly we're not at the centre of the universe anymore. So that's a bit troubling. And then we get Darwin coming along and saying, well, not only is our planet not at the centre of the universe, but it doesn't seem that humans were specially created. It seems that we've evolved just like any other species on the planet. And so that's where we're at with biology. And we are just one twig. The human species is just one twig on a massive branching tree of life um, that has a single common origin. So, um, you know, when you look outside and you see trees and birds, they're all your cousins. Um, and it goes back to that origin of, of life on Earth. And for me, as, a, 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 as I suppose as an evolutionary biologist as well, I, I think that's a, it's, it's humbling because it says humans aren't more special than any other species. 
Um, in a biological sense, you might say, well, we've got art and music and, and science and all of those wonderful things. But from a, in a purely biological sense, we're, we're not any more special. So it does humble us. But I think it's a wonderful place to be. I think it puts us back where we belong. It gives us context. It means we're part of the story of, of life on Earth. And I feel that a really kind of um, life affirming view. And it's a life affirming view which comes from science, comes from biology. And not only that, but I think it it then really stresses the responsibility on us. It, it turns it the other way around, doesn't it? Because rather than us being humans and having dominion over all these other creatures that are simply put on Earth for us, it seems, it changes it around and says, actually, you're just one species. These species have all evolved alongside you over thousands, millions of years. You've got responsibility to look after them. But it's also, so, sorry, to just to add that um, there are scientific studies that show that, you know, looking at the night sky or looking at a big landscape, the, the way we relate to them is we see ourselves as something small. We see ourselves, as Alice said, as, a, as humbled in a small place. But that, but that does really good things to us. It, it, it makes us nicer and happier and we behave better the next day if we've been exposed to some awe. So actually, it's that whole process of seeing ourselves as humbled a bit and part of this wonderful, amazing machine actually makes us nicer humans. <laughs> so so there's that going for it as well. See, that's what I found. I was reading, I was reading the other day that we're actually basically pretty much in the middle of the size of things in the universe, which is, seems very odd and counterinstinctual initially when you think of the enormity of the universe. But then that suddenly reminds you of just how tiny the smallest thing, and, and, uh, and, and that kind of seems to change everything because you just go, well, we can't be in the middle of, oh no. Do you know how big those things are? Well, there's things that are very, very tiny as well. And I think all of that is part of the kind of the joy of the, of the game of trying to understand. Um, she did his live chat question. Yeah, go on. Yeah, go. So well, the first thing is a comment on Karen in the live chat says that the definition of a bommy knocker <laughs> is the seed pod of a liquid amber tree that looks like a giant spiked club. So that is just directly from the live chat. I have that sounds like it's worthy of further research, I would say. But the question from the appropriately named Coprolite 9000 is um, how and where should I have my bo body buried to give its skeleton the best chance of being studied by archaeologists hundreds, thousands or even millions of years in the future? So if you're keen to like where do you put yourself? <laughs> mudslide, mudslide, mudslide. mudslide. <laughs> Try to die in an anaerobic mudslide. Where do you, you find probably clutching your medical record? Then, like, yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's that's why we get all those lovely fossils off the Devon coast, isn't it? Is um, you know, big slides of mud have covered things, and that's what we're all slowly uncovering as we walk over the sort of fossil beach and see all these ammonites because they were all squished. But um, in this lovely anaerobic environment, um, you know, they weren't squished so badly. And um, so they're, you know, they're all this. Not too squished, but covered by very hard. You don't want to be squished too hard. Limestone caves are pretty good as well. Limestone caves are excellent environments for keep, 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 keeping um, skeletons for, for an extremely long time. So, uh, yeah, if you can crawl into, a, into the crevices of a limestone cave, you've got a very, very good chance, I should think. I mean, the trouble is that um, you, you kind of want to be buried, don't you? I mean, as uh, Brenna, as you were saying, you want to be covered up because if you're not covered up, then um, a scavenger will, will get at your body and pull your bones apart. So there's a kind of combination of needing to be in a, uh, the right kind of chemical state, but also hidden away from, well, anything, wolves, hyenas, 
whatever you, it is. Well, there's sometimes those America. guys help us uh, find that. So Tong Child is a, a very early fossil, so two-ish uh, million. And um, Tong Child, very sadly, um, was taken away by an eagle. Uh, we have little little eagle puncture marks, but possibly then further scavenge. And the only reason we have Tong Child's skull, we don't have the rest of it, is probably because some little scavenging animal carried the skull back off somewhere um, and put it somewhere nice and careful and protected. And, and then we found it, well, someone found it in a mine uh, ages and ages later. So sometimes but I guess um, we, we find little hyena piles or lion piles in the backs of caves but it's not going to tell us that much if it's just bits. It's also quite interesting thinking about what, what is the most ecological way to um, to leave your body or to kind of dispose of your body. Um, and that's something I do talk about a little bit in the book, actually, because, um, you know, we're all concerned about anthropogenic climate change. And so the, the, the scenario that we've got in Britain at the moment is not sustainable. We've gone from um, almost... 100% burial in 1900 to now more than 90% cremation. And those cremations happen in, you know, gas-powered crematoria. So being cremated is not an eco-friendly way to leave this leave this life. And so there's lots of other um, potential solutions now. Um, being buried is better, obviously, because you're not you're not um, combusting any fossil fuels in order to render your body into into just the bones. Um, but we haven't really got enough room to bury everybody. So there's there's lots of interesting suggestions um, coming along. You can be liquidised um, and then potentially used as fertiliser. Um, so, yeah, I think things are going to change a lot in the next next few decades and definitely this century. Oh, I'd like to see great. if we went back to charnel houses. <laughs> we used to solve the space problem by picking the bones up and choosing the nice ones and making them into pretty patterns that you could sort of put on a floor or a ceiling. Um, and then sort of after the medieval period, apparently we decided that was not the done thing. But we used to make room by, you know, taking uh, someone's great, 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 great granddad and taking the femurs and making a nice little parquet floor. You know the story, Alice, you know the story of Bill Hamilton, don't you? The, the, who well, I'm sure you know of him, you know, his big influence on, on Richard Dawkins' selfish gene and the way that he wanted to be buried. No, the, what did he want to do? He wanted to be placed in 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 the rainforest, and then with with kind of a, enough netting etc. around him that it would mean that larger mammals wouldn't be able to tear him apart, and that so so slowly as all of the other creatures of the forest kind of buried into him and slowly consumed him. So he would then just be spread out, you know, all the all of the butterflies etc. All of that would become part of him spreading out across uh, across the rainforest. But that, again, that's one of those ones which practically, if everyone says that, you end up with, uh, well, you end up with this terrifying image for poor, poor Helen of these, these you know, running around skeletons everywhere. Well, the, thing is, the thing about the skeletons, though, is that they hang on. So I, I'm all and I, I just, you know, want to be under a tree to turn into butterflies or whatever. That sounds fine to me. It's always mystified me that people want to preserve bodies that, you know, these sort of mm. stone mausoleums. When there's definitely like there might be a bit of decay in there, but it's limited. Like uh, no no worms are getting at you in there. And I've always been I've always thought that's slightly odd. <laughs> but anyway, we're we're possibly um, uh, taking a bit of a detour from the original. <laughs> but I think we're definitely going to deal with this next week. This next week on psychology. I don't care how much Pete Etchell <laughs> thinks we're going to be talking about the effects of Fortnite and Minecraft on the kids. We're going to be dealing with your dreams and our also psychological attachment to our body, even when we're no longer in it. 
Have you got any more questions, by the way? Uh, no more have come through just now, so you can carry on with the previous. Right, so the next, this might may well be actually the final question, and uh, I'll, I'll just remind you, by the way, I, I should mention, by the way, Brenna's also working on a new book as well, uh, Growing Up Human, and uh, Alice's book, as we mentioned before, Ancestors, is, uh, is freshly out right now. Uh, this is from Marvin. Marvin would like to know, is there any evidence in the fossil record of humans damaged by solar radiation or massive solar events in the distant past? Now that's, uh, I think that's, is that a no, generally, I think, from both of you? I've... Nothing that I'm aware of, mm. no. no. No, unless you sort of mean solar radiation like they died of heat exposure, which has probably definitely happened. And one of the reasons that we run around now, you know, with, with fur coats is um, trying to deal with all that solar radiation that we seem to expose ourselves to. But I, I don't think that's what he means. No, <laughs> I, I think, think he... Corona eruptions, I don't think have killed anyone. Uh, Nazim would like to know, uh, in a recent show, Alex, you talked about ancient sunlight dating of soil. And uh, Nazim would like to know a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, this is more, more Brenner's um, bag than mine, but it, it's basically optically stimulated luminescence. We have all these different ways of, uh, of dating um, objects and also even dating sediment as well. And that's what o OSL does. Um, and essentially, in a nutshell, it is a, it's a record of the last time that quartz grains were exposed to sunlight and then they're buried um, and then we're able to basically detect that signal. Um, but the samples have to be um, taken without exposing them to light as you dig them. Brenna, have you used that on any of your sites? No, no. I mean, we, we tend, <laughs> I've tended to work places that uh, we still have a pretty good radiocarbon record. So um, we haven't had to use what I'd call extreme dating measures. Um, that's, you know, uh, I, I work on stuff that's probably within the, I think the earliest, probably 11,000 years old. So that's twice the age of pyramids, two pyramids ago, um, or pyramid age. Um, so we have radiocarbon and the fancy stuff is, is the hominid realm for people who are staring at a species going, well, are we related? That's, that's when you get also the funding for that kind of stuff. Also, if you don't have any, because obviously radiocarbon dating relies on you having some carbon, it relies on you having something organic around. So if you haven't got organic remains, then these other techniques are really, really useful. And they're also really useful for checking up on dates. So that, you know, if we've if we've got several different scientific techniques for dating um, and they're all saying the same thing, we can be pretty sure of that. Um, so we know, for instance, that Edwin Poots is completely wrong about the Earth only being 6,000 years old. Oh, well, you've suddenly thrown that in there, haven't you? Everyone's having a lovely Sunday morning and now they've found out the Earth's older than 6,000 years old. That's going to have taken a lot <laughs> of our viewers, I think, a little bit by surprise. The, I should mention, by the way, you can see, Alice, uh, uh, the last monkey case that we did together was was you and also uh, Sarah Parkat, space archaeologist, and, uh, and Sarah Pascoe. So some of the things that we've uh, today if you want to go and uh, listen to that monkey cage as well from I think it was the perhaps the previous series that we, that we did um this, I'm just going to throw this question in because this can is I, not can I interrupt Robin sorry we've got some news just in which is that there is a short chattery teeth by Stephen King which is exactly <laughs> about teeth being put into someone and taking over and the teeth are te the teeth are somehow sentient and want to kill him so, <laughs> chattery teeth if you want to your um, teeth horror uh, genre 
Was that from Johnny Mains or was that, that from That was from Johnny Mains, yes. I thought it would be Johnny. I knew he would. Well done, Johnny. And uh, good morning. He says I've not read it. He hasn't read it, but he knows it exists. <laughs> it's, it's very rare that he hasn't read it. Can, can I really too. recommend, by the way, for, for uh, uh, Johnny Mains, go, go and look up his, uh, he's got a couple of books out now. If you, if you go onto Twitter, O Cinnaman is his is, uh, O uh, and Cinnaman and man. Uh, um, he's just done two really fantastic collections. One in particular is a fascinating collection of kind of lost victims. Victorian stories dealing with illness and death, which kind of fits in very much with some of the things that people have been contemplating over the last year. And they're really, really fascinating. So go and look at his work. Uh, final question, because it links everyone uh, here, apart from me, obviously, because it's a science question and I'm just not. Um, this is from Louise, said that there was an old article trending on Reddit this week about million-year-old fossilised bubbles in lava. Uh, the research seemed to indicate that this showed that the atmosphere was much thinner, thus the planet was Hotter. It said if we had the same atmosphere then as we do now, the Earth would have frozen over. So as atmosphere has thickened and we still have a lot of liquid water, how is that possible? So bubbles, fossils, who wants to start on this? Helen, is this one for you? I need to, there's a lot of different bits in there that I was thinking about as it as it goes along. So the first thing is that it's not the content of the bubbles which is going to matter here. It's the pressure. And um, the content of the bubbles would have been changed quite a lot because they would have reacted with the lava. But the, I think... From the sound of it, it sounds like this must be the size of the bubble. And the implication is that if the pressure, the atmospheric pressure is lower, the bubbles will grow a bit bigger. But I'm not entirely sure. That depends a lot on knowing how big the bubbles would have been before. So I don't know this story. I think it would be a really complicated story to unpick. Um, but it, and I so I, I would treat it with, a, you know, I think you need a lot of evidence to be sure that you were seeing the story you thought you were seeing. But it sounds very interesting. But I think it'll be the pressure rather than the content. Um, um, and Alice, nice, simple one for you. And Nick would just like to know, have you always been good at drawing or did you take special lessons? Ah, I've always loved, I think I've loved drawing and it's very kind of you, Nick, to say that I'm good at it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but I've always loved it. And I think that you do tend to get better at things that you do and you practice on a daily basis. And I also find it really, really useful um, in my teaching. So I do a lot of drawing in teaching and I've been doing lots more of that this year, actually. And I've put some of that on my YouTube channel. So I've I've put um, some anatomy drawing, but also some embryology drawing over on my YouTube channel. And I just think it's a great way to get across scientific ideas. And I think we should. Um, I'm, I'm really I'm really hopeful that we'll do more drawing on science courses in our universities as well. I'm certainly starting trying to start that um, going at, at Birmingham. Um, so yeah, I, I do I do love drawing, and I've drawn a few pictures for my um for my latest book as well so there's a few of my illustrations in there brilliant thank you so much thank you very much you're going to be going back onto a dig very very soon and as we mentioned before have a new book uh well not you're still writing i think or is it is it how imminent is growing up human yes it is called growing up human and it will definitely be in existence this time next year and she also mentioned that this is uh, doing an event for the Hay Festival this afternoon. So, and uh, we'll hopefully, depending of course how everything pans out, we'll hopefully be touring around towards the end of the year uh, talking about her book as well. Helen? Um, so, oh, the, the Motor Matters podcast is out. There's an, and there's a fully charged episode about cycling, getting energy from humans into uh, batteries, which is, so the one that, the, the thing that excites me most is learning that in when you charge your laptop, you are using exactly one rich tea biscuits worth of energy. That's how much it takes to charge a laptop. Um, but Alice has a thought for the day, so we mustn't forget the humanist thought for the day. I don't know if that was on your list, Robin. No, it was. Um, 
Ah, oh, well, that's what we're going to finish on, I think. I don't know if you have other plugs or whether Alice is going to do No, I'll just mention, do listen to Wife on Earth. As I said, Joanna Neary is one of the, uh, the the funniest and most delightful performers, and that's on Cosmic Shambles, her new series, Wife, series Wife on Earth. And as I mentioned before, Aoife will be the Tips for Existence guest. Oh, and also um, Annie Mack, now Annie McManus, because she's retiring from DJ, DJing. We talked to Josie Long and I talked to her about her new book, Mother, Mother, for this book shambles that's just gone out and it's a fantastic novel it's a very very i genuinely think it's a, it's a really interesting novel so you can listen to our conversation um and now thought for the day from thank you very much it's lovely to be able to do thought for the day here because i can't do it on radio 4 because they won't have a humanist you have to be religious unfortunately um i'm going to take my thoughts for the day from um the small and perfectly formed little book of humanism and it picks up some of the themes that we were talking about earlier. We humans are part of nature, not separate from it. We're connected to every living thing on the planet. If you feel a sense of quiet comfort in a green forest or joy when the rain falls around you or pleasure when the sun warms your face, you're feeling a deep and meaningful connection with your own natural environment. Try to think about it the next time you're outside in nature. We are nestled in the story of life on this planet, part of it. Well, yesterday, nine hours on a train, and it was the sunniest day there's been for months. And today, I don't have to spend nine hours on a train, and it looks overcast. So nature, I may not have that contemplation after all today. Uh, thanks very much for listening and watching. Uh, we'll be back again 10 a.m. next week. And thank you very much to our producer, Trent Burton. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at cosmicshambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at cosmic shambles or cosmic shambles network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network.